welcome to MonarCast. I'm Claire. And I'm Allie. And this week we're diving back into our Deposed Monarchs series. We've left England for the wintry, mysterious... (laughs) Yes, Russia. Yes, wintry Um, is right. Um, Their winters were no joke. (laughs) No, seriously, we were going to get to the point where I was reading your outline, but at one point I was like, only in Russia. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But we're doing the Romanovs. Yay! If you've seen the movie Anastasia... This is not that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I loved that movie growing up, and so, like, I think it'll be really fun. Do you know what? I I actually just rewatched it because I was reading... This book about Nicholas and Alexandra, and I was just like, I was so close to being done, but I was just like so tired of like reading. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna watch Anastasia. That was a big mistake. I, like two minutes in, I was like, what is this movie even about? Like, it's definitely not about the Romanovs as I know them. <laughs> so it's, it's a charming caper with an amnesiac and a thief and yeah. a rat and a wizard. It's a bat. <laughs> A bat. A oh, he's, bat. A, he's a bat. Okay. okay. It's, it's like the most sanitized version possible of this story to the point where they don't actually ever mention what happens to the rest of her family. They, like, they barely mention that they're dead. They mystically disappear in green fire. That's how I remember it. No, the last <laughs> thing you see is them like taking off on a train and that's it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Jeez. Yeah. So anyway... Don't watch Anastasia for the truth. But yeah, there's some good songs and it's a cute movie. Yeah. That's all I know. Okay. Also, I want to apologize up front. I'm going to do my best to get through this. But if you cannot tell, I have a horrible chest cold. So I am probably going to punctuate this with a few um, unpleasant noises. But I'll try to keep them to a minimum. Well, we can edit them out. And I'm obviously still rocking my absence of a microphone so there's that yeah so all right but Claire first you're gonna give us an update where we left off last time which was our breakdown of the Harry and Meghan situation and if you have not caught up on that I highly recommend listening to it we did our best to break down all of the events and scenarios that um, were proposed by the Sussexes and we've obviously now had a lot of updates and even resolution to that so take us through it well so I just want to say I'm a little proud of us for keeping our like I think you and I could easily have gone off the rails into like drama hysteria but I like to think that we were somewhat rational in our analysis because a lot of what ended up happening was a little bit like what we suspected um And it was a quick resolution. Um, In fact, I think we recorded that on a Saturday and by maybe like Tuesday or Wednesday, there was, um, you know, a lot of stories came out. But um, within within another week, a pretty much resolution came out. And basically what's been announced is that Harry and Meghan are stepping back, and as you and I suspected, it's it's not going to be a half-in, half-out approach. It is pretty much all out. They are going to stop using the HRH titles, which I think is kind of big, especially for Harry, given that he's a 
Prince of the Blood and has been HRH since birth, but he's no longer going to use it. Importantly, they have not been stripped of that. I think I read there was some discussion about that, but I think everybody agreed that would look too petty. And we can talk about this at the end, but I think a lot of what's been done is purposefully um, temporary if they want it to be. So right. they're, no, they're no longer going to use the HRH. They will continue to go by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Um, they're going to live, it's been confirmed, they'll be living in Canada for a lot of the time. In fact, Megan, after the announcement, flew back to Canada and by all accounts has no intention of coming back to the United Kingdom in any significant way. Again, I do wonder what that means for her citizenship um, applications, but that's obviously up to them. Um, Harry has now joined them. They are stepping back from their roles as senior royals. Harry is also giving up all of his military appointments, which I think probably has to sting a little bit. That, to me, was symptomatic of a hard line. Because you and I talked about the fact that, you know, they would probably get a lot of what they wanted, but there would be certain lines that would be drawn in the sand, and I think that's one of them. I think it's fitting, um, though. I mean, the military appointments are given to him in his capacity as a senior royal, which he no longer is. Right. Wants They're to ceremonial. Be. Yeah. Um, and then they also... Basically, they're no longer working members of the royal family. They're obviously still members of the royal family, but they're not going to be senior royals. They're not going to formally represent the queen. Um, they are going to maintain their private patronages. That didn't, it wasn't clear to me what exactly counts as private, what counts as public. Um, they, this was a big piece. They're going to repay the funds that were used to refurbish Frogmore Cottage. And I think, interestingly, they have not explained who's going to be paying for security, nor do I wonder if we will ever get an answer for that. And Charles is going to continue bankrolling them privately, at least for the time being. Yeah, I think think the repayment is a, um, like a precautionary measure of, you know, for the public, like they're getting out ahead of the outcry on that a little bit. Um, I think that keep I, I think that that keeps them in the house. Yeah. And also they may not be paying rent. Right. There was an interesting article I read recently on um, exactly how the Duchy of Cornwall makes its money and the exact nature of public versus private and tax exemption and all of that. And so they, they have opened a Pandora's box of questions as to how this entire family is being funded. Um, I so think I Charles think, may not be happy about that. I think probably he didn't want people taking a closer look at that. Um, so I think what's kind of interesting is that they've been sort of let loose into the world, um, but they were not allowed to, you know, when their initial statement said we're going to continue to support the Queen, we're going to continue to take tours, we're going to con- basically continue in our roles, we're just not taking the sovereign grant, and as you and I suspected, that's not where they ended up. No. Um, and I think that was the hard line drawn was saying you're you you can't you can't be both. Um, but importantly, they have said that this will be revisited in a year. I think they've left the door open for almost like an experimental phase. 
go out, see how it goes. If you want to come back, we'll welcome you with open arms. I think that's the most important part of this is the open-endedness of it, of nothing has been done that is so permanent it can't be undone. Right. Um, you know, and I think the Queen's statement especially was extremely kind and yes so uh, so I didn't mention that she did come out saying you know she supports them you know she recognizes it's been difficult which is I think the most acknowledgement you're ever going to get from the royal family about the racist press coverage and you know she was sort of wished them well yeah it's an interesting experiment and I think um I wonder too if there was a willingness to try it because you know I think we mentioned a little bit in our last episode, William obviously has a vested interest in how this plays out for his own children. Mm-hmm. So. But it also, I think we talked about this in our last episode. It almost read like a reaction, like Harry and Meghan's actions read like a reaction. And I think the family is hoping because here's the thing. That original statement that came out from Buckingham Palace was so carefully worded, and we talked about that too, where, you know, it was pretty clear, or it became clear, that they weren't blindsided by the circumstances, but they were blindsided by the announcement. And But the Queen even said in her statement, it's been several months of of conversations. And I almost wondered, when I read that statement, I kind of wondered who dictated what terms like who put in that this has been several months of conversations who included um you know what what parts were meant to put who in whose place because you have to wonder who how many people were involved in drafting all of the statements that came out but I thought it was interesting that they made a point to say you know this didn't come out of nowhere but I did but then with that being said I thought back to all the stories that came out initially where they were saying you know Harry was trying to have conversations about this and was being put off and I believe that I kind of believe that maybe you know the queen and the senior royals were like oh yeah we'll talk about it eventually kind of just hoping that the idea would go away and now I almost wonder if maybe the approach is like, well, let's just let them do it and maybe they'll find out the grass is not greener on the other side and they will come back. Well, we, I guess, have the next year to see. I mean, I think it's all going to come down to how much Harry and Meghan can dictate their own press coverage because I think it's clear that that's what they want. They're already suing photographers in Good Canada luck. for taking pictures of Megan. Although I do not, I almost debated if I should bring this up. Did you see those pictures? Yes. Okay. When you first saw the pictures, did you think it was a staged photo shoot? She's looking right at the camera and grinning. Yes. But yeah. now they're suing the photographer. So I'm yeah. confused. I, my point was like, when I first saw it, I kind of thought, okay, this is like they've invited a photographer to take pictures because they want to show the world like we're happy, we're established, this is what we're doing now. But then it came out that they were suing the photographer and then I was like, oh, I'm really confused. Like who knows what, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is nobody exactly knows what their media strategy is. And I think that that will demonstrate a lot of what they're trying to do moving forward because no one really knows exactly what it is that they want to do like you said their website took this very noble tone which I think 
the cynics in us are kind of like, okay, is is this really all about like being more philanthropic or is this like about straddling that line between what they call professional income and philanthropy? How's that going to work? Um, you know, now there's rumors like Megan's going to do a sit down interview. I do wonder, I don't think, I don't think that would be the initial choice, but you again, we just don't know. So like yeah, you say, we really it's don't know. Really and fun I, to I watch. think, like I said, the next twelve months will tell us. I mean, I I'm getting the sense that you know um, they may not having be having to deal directly with the royal press pool, but I think there's um, an awakening coming their way about you know that doesn't mean they can control all the press that happens about them. Um, you know, they they've also removed themselves from the royal protection, so. Um, we'll see what comes of that, but, but we'll keep, um, we'll keep doing updates as these stories progress, I guess. Um, there'll be more gossip as there always is, but for now, I think, are you ready to go to Russia? I am. All right. Um, specifically we're talking Victorian era Russia, um, or just after and, um, turn of the century. It's a, you know, Suppose it's it's a it's a heady time in Russia and the world, I guess we could say. So um everyone we, we mentioned this a little bit briefly, like I think the story of Nicholas and Alexandra and the Romanovs is world famous, well known. Everybody knows the story of the last Russian czar and his family. Um, they're enthralled to this mystical monk named Rasputin. Um, then they're brutally murdered by the Bolsheviks without a single survivor, except maybe the youngest daughter, Anastasia. Um, that's not the story at all. Um, parts of that is, are true. Um, but I think distilling it down to such a simple tale really doesn't do the story justice and also should not have to remind people or say this, but... Anastasia was killed with the rest of her family, so we're not going to go into the the long, painful history of pretenders um, in that regard. Can I just ask one question? Sure. I seem to remember, like, that wasn't confirmed until relatively recently. So, the I, you know, I meant to um, add these dates as, like, a sort of epilogue, but the bodies were not exhumed until the 90s or 80s or 90s and so they did eventually um discover all the bodies and confirm that it was the czar and his entire family that were killed um but the 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 first person accounts of the executioners i mean they all i mean anastasia was i think the last to die but she was also killed with the rest of them so okay I'm just curious because I know that's like the myth and I always wondered why everybody thought she got away. Well, there was one very famous woman who um, claimed for decades to be the the Duchess Anastasia. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, And, you know, obviously people want to cling to this belief and, um, and, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about it when we get there, but their, their, their murder was done in secret and shrouded in mystery. And so, naturally stories crop up around events like that. And, you know, that's part of one of the many reasons why the story of the last Romanovs is so compelling and why all these myths have arisen in the decades since their deaths. Um, And I think really, though, much like a lot of the other stories we've talked about in this series, you know, including 
Charles I, Marie Antoinette. We're talking about a monarch who essentially failed to understand his people. And you have a family that gets swept up in world events that are larger than they can comprehend at the time, um, or that they really understand their impact until they happen. And Honestly, I think it's a story that illustrates why history is so awesome and why it's the best view of things. Um, oh, hindsight. hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Yeah, and 360. I mean, uh, this story, I think more than any others, is like, I, 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 I'm going to be curious to hear what you think at the end of this. I still can't decide if I think things could have turned out differently, if I want to blame Nicholas and Alexandra for some of the events, or if really it was just a perfect storm beyond their control. Let's do a really quick, brief, um, no, I'm not calling this a bio is probably generous, but who were the last of the Romanovs? So the Romanovs, by the way, were the ruling family of Russia for the last 300 years of um, monarchy in that country. Um, and Nicholas II, um, and Empress Alexandra, his wife, were the last two reigning emperor and empress of Russia. Um, and their children, um, they had five children. So Olga, Tatiana, Marie, Anastasia, and Alexis. So four daughters and one son. And Alexandra, who was known as Alex, um, was actually a granddaughter of Queen Victoria um, through her mother. And she was a German princess of Hesse when she married Nicholas. Okay. So her so, mother was Queen was Queen Victoria's daughter who married a German prince. Yes. Okay. And and this isn't um, the, like the I well we can get I was reading your outline and I had a comment which I will get to when you talk about the fact that she was German and that wasn't very popular. No. But um Catherine the Great was a German princess. Yes, but but um not to get too much into it, but by this point um, I mean, obviously, Nicholas himself had a lot of family members who are German. He's cousins with the Kaiser of Germany. Um, and but, he's also related to Queen Victoria? So he is not directly related to her, or he might be more distantly related to her. I was actually trying to figure it out. I think Nicholas and Alexandra were cousins of a sort, but they had more cousins in common, if that makes sense. So, Because didn't um, he look exactly like King George? Yes, but that's because his mother and George's mother were sisters. Oh, so they are cousins then? No, because, um, okay, we're getting way too... I'm sorry, well, I just wanted to understand. And the family tree, but so Nicholas's mother was... um, Marie, Empress Marie, who um, was a Danish princess when she married Alexander III of Russia, and her sister married the King of England. So, so, so he's cousins with the King of England. Yes, but neither of them is are cousins through Victoria. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. That's not what I was trying to say. I was just trying to establish that he is related to the throne of England. Yes, they had. They were first cousins through their okay. mothers. Yes. Okay. And gotcha. yes, they did look very much alike. Um, in fact, there was a family wedding they went to where everybody was confusing them. And um, when some of the surviving Romanovs arrived in England after um, the events we're going to talk about, a few of them were quite taken to see the Tsar alive. <laughs> um, That's funny. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it was King George, but. Um, Yes, so all 
I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we, and I think we've mentioned this before, Queen Victoria was known at one point as basically the grandmother of Europe because she had many children who proliferated amongst the many royal houses of Europe. And so we're talking about a whole mess of cousins here. Um, Can I ask one more question? I'm sorry. Yes. When we're talking about emperor and empress, so we're talking about the Russian Empire. Yes. And that stretches from pretty much if you picture Russia on a map, that's Russia. Pretty much like the country of Russia today and then the former, um, I believe most of the former Soviet republics. um, And then also, I think some of the lands of the Crimea and um, the Caucasus and, you know, some of that area as well. Okay, but generally speaking, if you it's picture larger, Russia the on emperor, a map. The empire of Russia was larger than the current, um, well, larger than both the current country of Russia and larger than the USSR. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Um, and we'll actually talk a little bit about that, how they lost a lot of that. Um But yes, so Nicholas is known as both Tsar of Russia and the emperor as well. Um, And his wife, Alexandra, was more commonly referred to as empress or um, I think Tsaritsa maybe, but we'll call her empress. Um, So any more bio questions? (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, I understand and I wanted to cover a lot more about that, um, but, you know, they had a really interesting... Um, theirs was actually, I should mention, was a love match. They chose to be married to each other. Um, they had a really interesting courtship and he had an interesting history before they got married, but I just had to be merciless and cut things for time. So we're talking more about their downfalls today. So, um, I will mention at the top though, if, and all of this is interesting to you and you want to know the full story, I fully recommend this book I read called Nicholas and Alexandra. It was very, very good and very, very informative, Um, but it was also about 500 pages, so condensing that was tricky. Right. Yeah. Um, I find when they're deposed, there's a lot to cover. (laughs) There is, because it's not just, like, one thing that causes it, you know? Right, People aren't just, like, they don't wake up one day and decide they want to murder their king. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so let's talk about what led to their downfall. Um... So we're going to do things a little bit different today because as I've now mentioned many times, we're talking about a huge amount of information and I found it more helpful to approach this from a thematic angle rather than going through a chronology of Nicholas's 20 plus years on the throne because a lot of this happen, starts to happen before he's even on the throne and you know some of it comes into play outside, way outside of his control. So trying to keep track of dates, especially when we bring in wars and different countries and all that was not a chore that I wanted to embark upon. So um, I'm going to take us through these larger themes that I think contributed to their ultimate end. Themes both that are close to home and the family and broader Russian-European world themes as well. I like it. Yeah. So first off, very close to home, both Nicholas and Alex, unfortunately, were not great at first impressions. And this ran up against uh, ingrained prejudices as well as their own personalities. Um, I had mentioned, um, or you, I think you brought this up a little bit, but there was a very real um, anti-German sentiment in Russia um, at the time of their marriage. You know, most people assumed that 
this match would never happen because she was German, and but it did anyway. And so much like, uh, as you told us, Marie Antoinette was known as that Austrian woman. Um, she was known as the German woman. <laughs> so um, that really didn't help endear her to the Russian people. And then later, of course, during World War One, anti-German sentiment only grew and became more dangerous. So also, in addition to her unavoidable Germanness, there were some other hiccups as well. So before her engagement and marriage to Nicholas, Alexandra had already made, or I'm calling her Alexandra because she was Empress Alexandra, but her name was Alex, actually, um, which was a German Germanicized version of Alice, um, who was her mother. Um so she had already made a handful of trips to Russia since her older sister Ella was actually married to Nicholas's uncle, one of the Grand Dukes. So she would come to visit and she didn't make a very good impression on these visits um because St. Petersburg society saw her as well, all kinds of things, badly dressed, clumsy, they thought she was an awkward dancer, they thought she was too shy, she was too nervous, she was too arrogant, and they also thought she spoke French with a terrible accent. Beyond her supposedly disqualifying Germanness, these are also reasons people thought, you know, the Tsar and his wife would never allow their son to make this match. But a lot of this actually was because she was just really shy, <laughs> and she also hadn't really been exposed to society that much and Russian society was very different from the German society that she was used to and she still struggled to fit in even after her marriage she didn't enjoy the St. Petersburg balls and nightlife Uh, and unfortunately these were the major form of social interaction during the long Russian winters and since she was very shy in public she came across as icy and aloof and she never really endeared herself to the nobles. Um, she had a few close friends and intimates, but on a grand scale, didn't really do a lot to change these first impressions. And I'm then getting Nicholas, some shades of Marie Antoinette. Exactly. I, you know, I, um, I didn't put it in this outline, but I meant to mention, I, I found a lot of similarities between their stories. And ironically, in her bedroom, Alex had photos of Queen Victoria and other various family members. And the only portrait she had that was a non-family member was Marie Antoinette. Huh. Which is, I don't know if that's foreshadowing or irony or, or both. It would, it would imply that she admired the woman. I don't think she meant to share her fate. So um, Nicholas himself also did not make a great first impression. He was not well prepared to be emperor um, because his father didn't think that he was mature enough to learn how to rule yet. Um, So he kept putting off bringing Nicholas into meetings with ministers, teaching him the ins and outs of the government. And he would just like send him on these tours. But otherwise, Nicholas was just like shacked up with a ballerina and living, you know, a grand life. But Alexander III died at age 49 when Nicholas was only 26. So um, he became Tsar a lot sooner than most people thought he would. And his lack of preparedness was a very bad combination with his personal distaste for confrontation. Um, And since he decided to take a more in-depth approach to governing than his father had, this wasn't a very good mix. He was dealing more with ministers on a day-to-day level and the ins and outs of running the government rather than trusting them to run things than his father had. And so his 
desire to avoid confrontation didn't always um, translate to a very strong rule. Hmm. Um, and and also I mentioned these um, these balls that the family uh, or that the maybe not the entire family, but that Nicholas and Alexandra would you know kind of make an appearance at in Russian society. This partying, opulent, you know, extravagant lifestyle was the public facing presentation of the monarchy. And it's what the Russian nobles and Russian society knew of them. But internally, the royal family actually led a very frugal life inside the palaces. Um, the children would sleep on hard cots. They would all dress simply. I think Alexander III dressed like a Russian peasant, basically. And they would eat simple meals. But the public never saw nor knew this. So, so wh- why did they do that? Um, tradition, I guess they, that's just how his father and his grandfather, I think ran their households. And so that's how they were accustomed to living. Um, in fact, Nicholas and his siblings, when they were growing up would often be starving because they could only eat when the czar was at, um, like when the czar had has all his food and then they could get their food. But then like that left them like five minutes to eat food or something. Interesting. It's almost like the opulence that you think of when you think of like the Russian court and everything is like a is like a costume that they would put on for society. Well, it kind of is, and it also wasn't really for them. It was for the nobles, and so um, you know they would have to go and take part in it. But it wasn't really the way that they lived as a family. Mm. I mean, of course, they lived in a giant palace and had servants, and you know things done for them but they would bathe in cold water and in uh, russia oh no in russia you. in the winter time yeah i know yeah and and alex like when she married into this she was okay with all of this or was she like whoa she slept on a hard cot or just the children i'm not sure um but their their lifestyle was not as extravagant um as it might have outwardly seemed they also okay. didn't have i mean they they were wealthy of course they had tons of jewels but they weren't um, like rolling in cash. They weren't liquid. Right. Gotcha. Um, I gotcha. think honestly, most of it was tied up in jewels and like Fabergé eggs. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I'm telling you, there's so much I wanted to talk about that we're just not going to cover today. And then, so perhaps the biggest first impression that Nicholas and Alexander made as a couple that unfortunately had long-term impacts on their reign was something called the Kodinka tragedy, um, excuse my Russian pronunciations, I'm going to try my best. Um, But on November 1st, 1894, Nicholas's father, Alexander III, died. And a week after the funeral on November 26th, Nicholas and Alexandra were married. Um, And then the country um, underwent a 12-month period of mourning. So um, it wasn't until May of 1896 that the new czar was finally going to be crowned in Moscow um, with his wife. And celebrations were planned all over all over this city, over the city, city, including this traditional huge air feast that was given for the people the day after the coronation, complete with these enamel cups that they'd give out as souvenirs and food, and maybe more, most importantly, free beer. And so at dawn, um, the day after the coronation, 500,000 people had already amassed on a place called the Kodinka Meadow, um, and some of them were already drunk. 
And so these wagons of the cups and the beer began to arrive. And then rumors started to spread that fewer wagons had arrived than expected. And only those who got there first would actually get the beer and the cups. And I also read somewhere else that there was a rumor that the cups had gold in them. So this triggered a stampede and almost 1,400 people were killed. And this is like the first day after Nicholas's coronation. And he's understandably horrified and decides that he can't continue celebrating after the tragedy. And, you know, Alexandra's in the same agreement, like, we can't celebrate while this has happened. Um, But he is overruled by his still powerful uncles because they don't want him to cause a larger scandal by skipping the ball that night that's being given by the French ambassador. Um, And Russia has just made a treaty and peace with France. So his uncles tell him, you cannot skip this. So they go. And um, after that, like the day after they go spend a day visiting hospitals, they paid for separate coffins for the dead out of their own private expenses, whereas normally they would just be buried in a mass grave. Um, And they paid the family of each victim a thousand rubles. Um, But the damage was done. So he was earned the nickname Nicholas the Bloody, and the public thought they were just callous and uncaring about this massive tragedy that had happened, which wasn't true. But again, public perception is everything. Hmm. So that was some bad luck. Okay, so the second theme I want to talk about is hemophilia. (laughs) Oh, I've been waiting for this. Which, Yeah, so this might seem crazy. Like, how does a blood disease take down a monarchy? But it actually has a huge impact on the, the reign of Nicholas and Alexandra and eventually the end. Because Nicholas and Alexandra, like I said, had five children. And they had four daughters before they had a son. So obviously by the time they have a son, this is a huge, like, huge deal. Like the czar has an heir. Everybody's celebrating, you know, yay, Russia's going to go on. Because Russian, Russian law also dictates that there can only be a male heir. Again, um, Marie Antoinette. Which was actually, yeah, that was actually put in place by the son of Catherine the Great because he hated his mother oh, so much. Oh, <laughs> that's sad. Yeah. I'm telling you, Russians are, it's a great history. <laughs> um, but what nobody knew about this new son, except a handful of people close to the family, was that the sole heir to the Russian throne had a very dangerous disease. Um, he, in fact, had hemophilia. And over the 14 years of his life, many knew that he was ill or sickly, um, but few knew why. The family just kept it as secret as possible. And a lot of this was fear, like, again, because the the Russian crown can only be passed to a son, if, if this succession seems in any way fragile or, you know, I guess precarious... Uh, they just feared that their enemies would seize on it. And I mean, it might have been better to share with the Russian people what was going on um, because it also kept both of them at home and they didn't travel about in Russia as much as they could have. And no one really understood the reasons why. And now, was hemophilia um, understood, like they understood what it was? Yes. So hemophilia by this point is pretty well known. It's, you know known throughout, well, it's been known throughout the centuries, and also it's well known throughout the royal families of Europe as well. So they know what it is. Um, It's just that 
at the time it's cause, well, actually even now it's cause is still unknown. Um, and it still doesn't have a cure. Although there are modern treatments available now that didn't exist in Alexis's time. Um, and since it's an inherited blood disease where the blood doesn't clot as easily as it would in otherwise healthy people, it's an extremely dangerous disease and it's carried in women. So, um, Alexis got it from his mother, um, but it mostly only presents in males. So it's very rare that females actually, uh, show symptoms of Mm. hemophilia. Um, and this might seem obvious, like what the impact would be, you know, cuts are obviously extremely dangerous, um, can lead to hemorrhaging, but also bumps and bruises are even more dangerous because they lead to painful hematomas, blood seeping into joints and general agony. Reading about this, I mean, this is no joke. Like this sounds a horrible thing for a child to have to go through. And um, Alexis, the Tsarevich, he suffered many an episode of bad bleeding and hematomas in his young life. Um, like basically what happens, I think is like you're, they don't really know why, but like something internal happens where like you, you know, bump into something, but like your blood will like seep into like your elbow or like your knee or your groin and then you like can't move. Well, and like, Yeah. I mean, think about like how many times you bump into a wall or like hit your shin. I mean, Jesus, I hit my shin on the well, corner of my bed probably like 18 times a month and never think so anything of it. So there's those, but then also there would be this just like spontaneous seeming like, mm. you know, oh, now I can't move my arm Jeez. kind of thing. Um, but what would happen is because, so a bruise is basically internal bleeding, but in a normal bruise, it would clot and you just get a small circle and it heals. But in Alexis's case and in hemophiliac's cases, it doesn't stop bleeding. So the blood has to go somewhere and you get these giant swellings. Oh my God. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And the pressure eventually stops it. Um, and then your body has to like resorb all the blood. I mean, it was agony. Um, so this is what the heir to the crown of Russia is going through and they're trying to keep this as secret as possible. Um, and this is their only son. And at this point it's pretty clear they're not going to have any more children. So I'll talk briefly about how this happened. So hemophilia had appeared in, um, over the last century, the ruling houses of Britain, Russia, and Spain. And it has been called the Royal disease because of this. Um, and also unfairly the disease of the Habsburgs, although ironically, no member of the Austrian dynasty ever suffered from hemophilia. Point one for Marie Um, Antoinette. Yeah. Right. (laughs) She didn't have Um, it. (laughs) No. Well, she wouldn't, she would have been a carrier of it. But but her kid didn't have it. So I'm just saying like, no, her, no, the um, the Habsburgs weren't known to suffer from this. Um, and actually, the culprit is Queen Victoria. Um, she's thought to be the one to have introduced it into the ruling families of Europe, likely from a mutation in her own genes or either passed on to her from her father or, um, a, or grandfather. And the reason they point to her is because her son, Leopold, um, suffered from hemophilia and actually died from it, um, as most people did. Who had it, and then um, he's the first known case in the um, British family. And then her grandsons, from her daughters Alice and Beatrice, also suffered from hemophilia, and they brought it into the German ruling families and the Spanish mm. ruling families as well. Um, and then ultimately through their descendants into Russia. Mm. Um, 
Alex herself had a brother who died from hemophilia when she was a baby, so it wasn't unknown in her family. And the genetic patterns that are known um, about how this passes between relatives were known to doctors and scientists, but it's very likely that either the royals just never bothered themselves to learn it or they just decided they didn't care. If you're ordained by God, Um, I mean... Right. I mean, well, because historically, you know... Um, like hemophilia is a very old disease. So like in ancient Egypt, if a family, who um, the Egyptians also intermarried. Well, they did, but in the, in ancient Egypt, if they had a child who had hemophilia, they weren't allowed to have more kids. Oh, interesting. Like, yeah. And then, or like, um, I read something where it's like, if, you know, in Jewish tradition, like if child, a, a parent, if parents had two children who like died from like hemorrhages, then they couldn't circumcise any more kids or like something like that. So it's like people knew that this would happen and they, they knew, knew it was genetic. The the way to the the way to stop it was to just not have more kids if you've already had, you know, because it's not just the danger of having a child with hemophilia, it's having a daughter who's then going to have a son that has hemophilia. So y- you just never know when it's gonna pop up. Um although I should mention that it hasn't popped up again since this time, nobody um, since um, the days of um, Queen Victoria's children have had hemophilia in the British royal family. Well, interesting. Well, I guess, so, well, yeah, I mean, they had enough, maybe like enough like fresh. Well, it's not about that. It's like, because the, the gene can carry. It's just that because there weren't sons, well, so, so for example... Wasn't Mary like, of Tech considered um, a good option because she wasn't related to Queen Victoria? Oh, that might be why, but like intermarriage isn't necessarily the thing that causes Oh, hemophilia. I guess I it's always assumed just, it was. No, I mean, it is a genetic mutation, so it might be more likely to happen, but that's not... They don't think that's where huh. it came from. It's just a. Oh, I always gene. thought that's what I always I always thought that was like one of the, the symptoms. No, the reason it was called the royal disease is because it proliferated through these families because they oh. intermarried. So it it the scale of it was more because they kept marrying people who had. Oh, I always read that as like it was a it. symptom of their inter- intermarriage. Like okay. no, no, it's just that because they intermarried, they spread it around. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So instead of letting it die out, they're just like oh, we've got two cousins with, like, history of hemophilia. Let's yeah. get them married. Like, you're going to have a kid just, with like, hemophilia. like, double down on it. Okay, interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah. The, the czar, like I said, the czar's heir has an illness that adds great risk to his person and his ability to survive childhood. Um, but maybe the greater tragic effect was on his parents because, particularly his mother, many of her poor decisions and actions that she made um, since his birth can be seen as a result of her fears for her son and his legacy. Um, A common theme of her letters to Nicholas was do this for baby or what about baby's legacy? It was kind of icky, (laughs) but her worry for him was all consuming and probably led to her own deteriorating health and seeming lack of interest in her subjects. Um, And this, this absolute desire to keep it secret led to a lot of poor decision-making. And, you know, not to mention the stress of constant worry about it. Right, right. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's, like, not a normal kid where it's like, oh, they get a fever, they'll bounce back. It's like, oh, he bumped his elbow last week and now he might die. Like, ugh. 
I mean, yes, that's exactly how it would go. And um, I'm not getting there quite yet, but also introduced perhaps the no- the most uh, notorious person in this story. I think that's all I'm going to say about hemophilia for now. I think um, we've had enough. Let's move. I think I think it sounds like you've had I, enough. I'm just like a little grossed out. I mean, I'm fascinated, but also just like, you know how I am. I get like very squicked out by this medical stuff. So I'm just like over here like, yeah. oh God. Well, then I'll gloss over this next part. Um, so the third theme I want to talk about is autocracy versus democracy. So I think something that comes up a lot with the Romanovs is, of course, their story ends in revolution. But... Um, Russia has had several brushes with, quote, revolution by this point. Um, Nicholas wasn't the first czar to deal with a disgruntled public. In fact, his grandfather, Alexander II, was assassinated, and the family watched him die in agony in the Winter Palace after his legs were blown off from a bomb. Mm. Um, I won't get into the details on that. Um, but he actually survived several assassination attempts before they ultimately succeeded. Oh, why did they hate um, him so much? Because he was the czar. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in 1905, um, only about 10 years into Nicholas's reign, the Russian Duma was created um, after a mini partial revolution demanded a voice of the people in government, or at least some sort of advisory capacity. Um, So Nicholas allowed the creation of the Duma only begrudgingly. um, And Alexandra actually was always bitter towards the idea, feeling that um, baby would inherit a diminished role from his father. Poor baby. I know, poor baby. I'm telling you, her letters were always like, poor baby, (laughs) baby did this. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Baby's 14. (laughs) um, Yeah. His relationship um, with the Duma actually was always contentious um, as he believed in his own autocratic rights um, and he felt that the Duma was an imposition on that and his slowness to recognize the ways that a constitutional monarchy might have saved Imperial Russia was a huge blind spot. Um, This is a point of disagreement that he and his cousin George had. You know, George was um, going to be king of a constitutional monarchy and was kind of like, hey, what's the big deal? And, you know, Nicholas felt very staunchly that um, Russia belonged to an autocracy. So that's an undercurrent that's happening throughout his entire reign as um, he's dealing with the Duma and ministers and this like back and forth relationship. Interesting. I'm going to keep saying this, but I keep, this reminds me so much of Marie Antoinette. I'm, I'm telling you, Claire, this story was very similar. And I, I also thought the um, when we get to the end, there's, I think there's a lot of similarities to with Charles I. And you have a government that overthrows the monarch and then doesn't know what to do with itself. But we'll, ta- we'll, well, we'll get there. The shades I'm getting here, and I know, I know it sounds like it's not the same because it sounds like the husband or the czar, Nicholas, was much more obviously at the forefront, but like you have a foreign bride coming in and kind of ticking everybody off just by virtue of her nationality, failing to win them all over and really embracing the role of mother almost to like the detriment of like the politician that he or she, that she could have been. Yeah. Like I, I'm obviously, I, I think as you could tell from our Marie Antoinette episode, episode I'm very passionate about her so I just think it was like interesting I'm listening to you tell this and I'm like this is the same thing it's just like the same thing they 
and not that far removed in time. About 100 years. Yeah, but like 100 years before modern technology to me is almost like, you know, it takes time for these movements to spread. Yeah. So anyway, Um, I don't want to keep hijacking your thread. I just... No, you're not wrong. They're very similar. And, um, you know, it might have helped if she had studied the story of Marie Antoinette a little more closely. Well, I mean, she clearly knew something about it because she had her picture up in her bedroom. Right. But it's probably unlikely that as a royal, she took the right lessons from it. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So the big, the next one I want to talk about is a big one. um, World War One. So I think World War One, it's fair to say, is the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of the internal issues facing Nicholas and Alexandra. And also it brought to the fore a lot of contributing factors that might not otherwise have mattered in a less fraught time. Um, so we've talked about World War One on this podcast before um, in our episode, The Rise of the House of Windsor, specifically in that episode about um, the British royal family's... Um, facing of World War I. Um, and what we did mention in that episode is that, in a way, World War I was a bit of a war between imperial cousins, um, with the big three of Kaiser Wilhelm, King George, and then Emperor Nicholas all fighting on various fronts. In this case, George and Nicholas versus um, Wilhelm. But that, I mean, that's not entirely fair to World War I, which is probably the most complex war of, um, I don't want to say modern times, but, um, there were a lot of factors causing World War One, not just cousins at war. It's just that these cousins happened to be heading the countries, um, fighting in this war. And, um, unfortunately for Nicholas, also a war caused by a spark of uprising against imperial powers. Um, in this case, the ruling family of Austria-Hungary. So when Austria declared war on Serbia because a Serbian national had killed their archduke, Nicholas felt compelled to back up his Serbian allies. But he also tried desperately to avoid a war. Um, He really didn't want to resolve to fighting because his previous failure um, in 1904 in the Russian-Japanese War had understandably soured him on the effectiveness of sacrificing Russian lives, both in military objective and his popularity at home. In fact, he wanted to refer the issue between Austria-Hungary and Serbia to The Hague, Um, but the Kaiser acted in bad faith toward his cousin, claiming not to want a war while putting off any efforts to stop his own mobilization and ultimately declaring war on Russia on behalf of Austria-Hungary. Which basically that sparked the world war part of this because then of course France came in and England and everybody else. So Um, he's the bad cousin. Yeah. The Kaiser really wasn't, uh, when he declared war on, on Russia, um, Nicholas had like a, an aha moment about his cousin. He was like, I don't think he was ever going to act in good faith. Were they also first cousins? Um, they, it's okay if you don't know the answer. I I don't know exactly how. I think they were cousins through their German relations. Um, Okay. So Nicholas was like very slightly Russian, um, but he was mostly German and Danish in uh, ancestry. I got Um, that when you mentioned they were criticizing Alex's French. (laughs) Yeah, well, they all, um, 
so of course they spoke Russian, but in society, French and English were common languages. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember exactly how, how they're cousins, but they are just, they might be a little bit more distant. Um, I know that the Kaiser was also a grandson of Queen Victoria. Who wasn't at that point. Right. Yeah. So, but the war was expected to be short. Um, you know, everybody thought Austria-Hungary wouldn't really prove to be a, a problem. Um, and if they had just been fighting Austria-Hungary and made a separate peace with them, that might have been true. Um, but as we know, of course, it wasn't a short war and it wasn't an easy war to win. And Russia especially paid a heavy toll in lives lost. I think like 1.7 million Russians ultimately died. Um, well, that kind of makes sense, right? Because like, well, maybe you'll get into this, but what, what Russia seems like a hard place to fund and house yes. an army. So Russia wasn't fully prepared for a war on this magnitude. Um, and they also didn't really have the infrastructure in place to fight a war so far from home. So um, ammunition was short and their poor railroad network contributed to a lot of the death toll as well because they just couldn't move supplies quickly enough across Russia to the front. Um, Can I ask you a question, a personal question? Sure. You've ridden the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Yes. Had it been updated since World War One? Well, since I wrote it after the Soviets had been in charge, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just that was sort of a facetious question, but... <laughs> Um, And the Trans-Siberian Railroad at this point did exist, but it didn't have a lot of options for tracks. So they couldn't both run supplies and troops and food and not not run into issues. And I'll talk about that actually a little bit later. Um, But they really just couldn't move things from the factories at home quickly enough to the front. So men were like running out of guns and basically having to charge the lines with no weapons. And even despite this, you know, many soldiers fought valiantly and Russia was actually a really um, hard enemy to kill. And they earned the respect of a lot of their enemies and allies alike, but many more died than needed to. And, um, including many officers. And then later in the war, many officers were just kind of leave the front to hang out in St. Petersburg. Um, hmm. So this general disorganization contributed to the anger towards Nicholas, who then decided that he was needed to head the army. And so then he went to the front and left the ruling of Russia in the hands of his wife. I'm going to guess that doesn't end well. Yeah. Um, and he did this during a time when they're at war with Germany. So anti-German sentiment at home is, of course, flaring up. And Alexandra was seen by many as a possible agent of Germany. And um, so she's undermined by this. And then she didn't help herself with her own actions. Can, so is that just like a lack of awareness on Nicholas's part? Or did he just think because she's the white, his, she's his wife, they would overlook well, at her this point, She's lived in Russia for 20 years and she's born five children who are Russian, including the heir to the Russian throne. She's not thinking of herself as German anymore. And I don't think anybody in the Royal family is thinking they're like, of course she's not allied with Germany. She's pro Russian. She's like sitting, she actually got um, certified by the red cross and would go and nurse soldiers in the hospitals and like 
knit them things at home. I mean, she was fully throwing herself into the war effort, but people just didn't care because also they didn't all see that. Um, again, you know, public relations weren't what they are now. So it was a little bit easier, I think, to spread rumors. And I really want to stress she did not help her case because as I'm going to talk about now, she made some very poor choices um, related to her son's hemophilia, but had a, a ripple effect through the rest of her pseudo rule while Nicholas was away at the army. Um, and by the way, his leaving her at home to rule is totally normal in an autocracy, right? Like you keep it in the family. Um, she's the empress. If the emperor is away, the empress can take over. But there's all this anti-German sentiment floating around. The people have never warmed up to her. And she has a habit of convincing Nicholas to dismiss ministers that she doesn't like or who she thinks don't have appropriate autocratic ideals or who mostly she doesn't like because they're critical of her favorite, Father Gregory Rasputin. Oh, now we're getting into it. Now we're getting into it. Um, I'm sure everybody has heard the name Rasputin. <laughs> um, I'm picturing green flames, <laughs> mystical enchantments, Buggy eyes. Yep, exactly like that. That's yep. exactly like that, right? Okay. Pet, pet albino bat. And exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but um, he's not a small figure in this story. So who was he? Um, not the cartoon that Claire just described, but who was he? He didn't actually sell his soul to curse the Romanovs. Um, Are you but he sure? actually may have helped curse them all the same. Um so he's a man from Siberia who led a drunken, debaucherous existence there before he resurfaces in St. Petersburg, reinvented as a holy man. Um, despite his claims to be like a monk, he was unwashed, bearded, and frankly, by all descriptions I read, just disgusting. Like the odors coming off of him were apparently appalling. Um, and, but he and, had and the queen of Russia, the czar... Yes, because he had charisma to, like, to spare. And he oh, also how do you have like, charisma if you smell that bad? I mean, he so he proved his holy bona fides, and that's all she cared about. So mm. he also had these, like, magnetic eyes that people claimed to fall under the spell of. Um, it is possible that he did know how to hypnotize people, and maybe that's what he was doing. But um, that's kind of a small part of his shtick. But he made a name for himself among the noble class of St. Petersburg as this, as this mystic and this healer. Um, also, side note, as a womanizer, attempted rapist, and drunkard, but that didn't count as much with the people who followed him for his holy teachings. Mm. And so eventually he comes to the attention of the empress who is desperate for anyone who could help her son. So at this point, he's got doctors, you know, any doctor that they can bring in. He's, she's seen probably every manner of healing specialist that they could, but obviously nobody can cure this disease that he has. And the doctors can barely help him when he's in, un, you know, in the midst of like a particularly brutal um, episode. And after a particularly terrifying episode in 1912, where they all thought that the eight-year-old Alexis was going to die um, until Rasputin proclaimed the boy will live, um, the Empress was 100% beholden to him after this. You know, she thought Father Gregory had cured her son just by claiming that he would live. Um, okay, so he kind of hit her in her weak spot. He really did. And, you know, he he didn't cure him, but he, he might have actually helped him because basically his advice was like, tell the doctors to leave him alone. And um, the theory is that 
by continually like poking and prodding him, they were exacerbating like the healing issues. Right. And so if they leave him alone, they let the blood finally clot and, you know, it kind of cleared up. And so he had, he had already helped out a couple times with Alexis and also, um, a friend of the Empress who brought him to her attention in the first place. Um, but by this point, I mean, she, he can do no wrong in her eyes. He's the savior that will help her son. Um, and he's also extremely cunning and he takes advantage of his powerful position with the Empress to also try and wield as much political power as he can because he knows his power in St. Petersburg rests with the good graces of the royal family. So he does his best to only ever show this holy, you know, um, healing side of himself especially to the Empress, but also to Nicholas and the children. And he pushes Alexander to call for the dismissal of any ministers who don't like him or who try to expose his darker activities. So he's using her to kind of control the narrative while also controlling the narrative that she hears. Um, and so she would hear these stories and like get letters about him being tossed drunk out of nightclubs or even boasting that he's sharing her bed. Um, but she just refused to believe it. And she would always blame the people as trying to take down Father Gregory. Most of the Romanovs, though, outside of the immediate family, really did not like Rasputin. They didn't like his hold over the Empress and the Tsar, and they um, resented the power that he was given as a result of this relationship. Ultimately, the nobles decided, we gotta get rid of this guy. And one young man, Prince Yusupov, son of the wealthiest family in Russia, decides to take down Rasputin. And now I want to bring this up because it's not entirely related to the downfall of the Romanovs, um, but it's a really fun story. <laughs> so I was, like, I can't leave this out. Have you, Claire? Have you ever heard about the death of Rasputin? I have not. Okay. Actually, I. I mean, obviously, I read your outline. And yeah. I was like, I can't wait to hear Allie talk about this because <laughs> it's, I I guess I never even, like, obviously I knew who Rasputin was and obviously I've seen Anastasia and as my repeated references to the Green Flames, you can tell it was like one of my favorite movies. But I never actually thought about how he died because I think in the movie he dies in like a terrible Green Flame Inferno. So, can it carry on. Okay, so... Rasputin has become this myth. I think a lot of the reason is because of his death. So this Prince Yusupov lures Rasputin to his home, basically with the promise of like, I'll let you meet my wife, who is supposed to be famously beautiful. So and Rasputin once he's can his, like rape her or whatever. I mean, yeah. So once he's there, um, he feeds Rasputin these tea cakes and wine that are all poisoned with cyanide. And this man who provides the cyanide and like crushes it up and like sprinkles it on the tea cakes like promises like this is more than enough to kill like 10 men or whatever. So Rasputin eats two tea cakes and has two glasses of wine to wash them down. All full um, of cyanide. All full of cyanide. Um, and two and a half hours later, he's still alive. So a terrified Not even, Yusupov, like, remotely foaming at the mouth? No, like, nothing. So <laughs> this man is, like, terrified and, like, goes upstairs to where he's got some co-conspirators waiting, gets a revolver, comes downstairs, shoots Rasputin in the back, and is like, he's dead. He's not dead. Then they chase him outside. Rasputin is running at this point. They shot him two more times. He falls, and then they beat him with, like, a rubber club. So at this point, they're like, okay, we finally killed him. They wrap his body up. They dump it under the frozen river. Three days later, the body is found, 
and the lungs are full of water because he died by drowning. <laughs> okay, wait. Can we just can we just back up and walk yes. through this? Are we sure he didn't sell his soul to the devil? <laughs> no, the only thing I can think is like it can't have been cyanide. Or like or, somebody made a mistake. <laughs> I read this story and I it was like Reddit, so please take this with a grain of salt. But there was apparently some like Roman politician who was so paranoid about being poisoned that he took like little amounts of poison throughout his entire life. And then he was arrested and he tried to kill himself with poison, but he had built up his immunity so much that he failed to kill himself. Is it possible that Rasputin was like immunizing himself to cyanide? I didn't think that was possible with cyanide because I felt like a little bit can kill you. Um, I don't don't know. I'm just saying. That's one possibility. Or like you say, maybe the supplier... Maybe it really wasn't cyanide. I don't know. Um, but then, but then, but then, let's walk. Let's walk to the next step. So then he's shot in the back. That would yeah. He at least shot slow three you times. down. He's shot three times, and then he's beaten, and then he dies by drowning. So that means when they dumped him in the river, he's been dosed with cyanide, shot three times, beaten, and yet he's still alive enough to breathe in. Water. water in a fro- yes. in a frozen river, so he didn't even freeze to death. He drowned. Yep. Okay, I personally believe he sold his soul to the devil. I, I mean, or he's just a big burly Siberian peasant. I don't know, but well, it was, yeah, there's that. Yeah. Um. Okay, so it also is possible I'm sorry that I'm not over he this. might this have is- been preparing for his death because he prophesied his prophesized his own death in a way. He wrote a he famously wrote a letter to Nicholas where he basically said, I think I'm not going to live to see the new year, but there if I die at the hands of the people, you're going to continue to reign and your children will reign. If I die at the hands of the noble, you and your families like won't live like another year or something like that. Wait, he actually wrote that? Yes. And okay, listen. Can we just like take a second? I don't want to look weird, right? (laughs) It it is weird, and it it is the one thing. I mean, he wait. That's not like an apocryphal story. Like he actually wrote that. Yes, in a letter to Nicholas before he died, and he also prophesied that like something else would happen like they were gonna like burn his body or something and like they actually did do that and like it was after he drowned after he was buried and after the um revolution has happened people like disturb they exhume his corpse and they burn it and like he kind of foretold that as well i mean he he definitely um this is why people literally foretold that or in some like mystical way where you could read into that later i mean I, you know what? I was going to read that letter. Um, okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'm just going to read the, the excerpt of this part. So he says, and he wrote this in like the last weeks of December of 1916. So he says, I feel that I shall leave life before January 1. I wish to make known to the Russian people, to Papa, to the Russian mother, and to the children, to the land of Russia, what they must understand. If I am killed by common assassins, and especially by my brothers, the Russian peasants, 
You, Tsar of Russia, have nothing to fear. Remain on your throne and govern, and you, Russian Tsar, will have nothing to fear for your children. They will reign for hundreds of years in Russia. But if I am murdered by boyars, nobles, and if they shed my blood, their hands will remain soiled with my blood. For 25 years, they will not wash their hands from my blood. They will leave Russia. Brothers will kill brothers, and they will kill each other and hate each other. And for 25 years, there will be no nobles in the country. Tsar of the land of Russia, if you hear the sound of the bell, which will tell you that Gregory has been killed, you must know this. If it was your relations who have wrought my death, then no one of your family, that is to say, none of your children or relations, will remain alive for more than two years. They will be killed by the Russian people. I shall be killed. I'm sorry. So he wrote that like that's not like after the fact somebody was like let me show you this letter that he wrote. I mean, yeah, I, that's kind of nuts. I'm not saying he sold his soul to the devil. <laughs> I'm just saying he might have sold his soul to the devil. I think it's like generally accepted that it's legit. <laughs> so, um. can we just say like I look? I don't buy into mysticism. I don't buy into all of this stuff. But that is a little freaky. It is very freaky. Okay, but I mean, that's why and, that's the myth of Rasputin, though. That's right? the myth of Rasputin. That's why he becomes this like outsized figure. Like the way he died, the the way he seemed to prophesize both his death and the revolution, and you know many other factors is why he's become like the you know quote Rasputin. Unfortunately, though, you know, by the time he's killed, his death might have been a saving grace for the royal family. You know, the nobles have eliminated this threat that they saw, um, but it was probably way too late by then. So, um, and, like, how did um, Alex react? Was she upset or was she like, okay, yeah, you're right, he had to go? No, no, no. She was horrified that this happened. Okay. Um, and she was bereft because who is going to take care of her son? I see. Okay. But it doesn't really matter at this point because he's not wrong. <laughs> so um, his his prophecy comes true. So um, I guess I'll talk about the final theme of what takes down um, Nicholas and Alexandra, which is also literally what takes them down, which is a revolution, disorganized though it may be, and ultimately civil war. So while Nicholas is away at the front through 1916, conditions at home are deteriorating. Um, The Russians are starving because um, food distribution is being interrupted as the railways that are already not robust are crumbling and those left um, are funneling supplies and men to the front and not bringing bread to the people. And the cities especially are suffering from this lack of supply. In the capital, in St. Petersburg, like massive riots and rebellions are breaking out and no one really seems to be in charge. Um, The British ambassador actually tried to warn the Tsar that he should grant constitutional reforms as a way to try to fend off this impending revolution, but Nicholas ignored his advice. Um, So from the left, he's attacked, you know, he's under attack from these revolutionaries. And on the right, his own nobles don't really have his back because they're alienated by his very feeble attempts at reform and then the political power that he had allowed Rasputin. So Nicholas is kind of on an iceberg alone here. And finally, on March 8th, 1917, morale is at an all-time low, Um, The combination of severe cold, um, because it's 35 degrees below zero, um, and food shortages, things finally boil over. 
um, riots break out, um, rioters are breaking shop windows to try to get into food, and then these red banners appear in the crowds, um, and these crowds are marching through the city chanting, down with the German woman, down with the war, down with the czar. So the people are upset. Can I just interrupt for a second? This is what I mean, only in Russia. Right. It's 35 degrees below zero, and they're taking to the streets? It's 35 degrees, degrees below zero and they're outside. Like, I don't, yeah. In um, what, like, in what world are you like, guys, it's 35 below, we're angry, let's go outside? Well, they're already outside because they're waiting in the bread line. Um, oh, okay. I, yeah. I see. Okay. I thought they were literally like, I've had it. Well, no, I mean, but they are outside. I mean, I guess it's winter. They're used to it. Um, I mean, this is what I mean. Only in Russia, like. yeah. But they're they're angry. They're you know they're angry at her. They're angry at Nicholas. They're angry at the war that they're still in this yeah. war where men keep dying, um, and the police don't really know what to do. They shoot at the crowds, which you know makes well, people. The police think, are cold. The police are like, let's go inside. <laughs> no, the police have no control. Um, and then the troops that are in the city are angry. They're badly trained, and they decide to side with the people because they're cold. Yes, but also they're just not I'm loyal. sorry. I can't get over the 35 below. Yeah. We'll just establish that everybody has the appropriate um, furs or whatever. I don't know if that's true, but for this, this intensive purposes. Um, so the, the soldiers going over is a big blow. Um, and on Monday, March 12th, power passes from the Tsar's government to the Duma, um, mostly due to the defection of the troops, um, including on the 14th, the Imperial Guard actually defects as well. So as order breaks down, the members of the Duma and the Soviet, which is the Workers' Party, um, form a provisional government to try and restore um, order. So like, it's like basically the people are just out in the street and rioting, um, and it's decided that Nicholas must abdicate. Um, and Nicholas, who's worried for his family, who are now being held by the government, he's worried about civil war, and he's worried about opening the way for the Germans, who they're still at war with. Like, he's worried about opening a way for them to come in and basically invade Russia. Um, so he agrees to abdicate. And on March 15th, he abdicates on behalf of himself and his son in favor of his brother, Michael. So why did he do that? So Michael wasn't what they wanted. Um, and in fact, as soon as he receives the throne, he like gives it up. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm out. Um, we don't have was a throne anymore. Was that planned? Anymore. It wasn't planned. And the reason he did it was um, because Alexis as a regent with like Alexis being the next in line with a provisional government as regent might have been enough to stave off revolution, but Nicholas wouldn't allow it because what it would have required was him being separated from his son um, because there's no way they would have allowed him to be educated with his family. Um, And given the hemophilia and the close family bonds, Nicholas knew that was a no-go. So he abdicated in favor of his brother. Um. So it's an understandable decision that he made, but one that ultimately staved off any recourse that he might have had. And I did mention briefly the the Soviet, um, which I haven't really mentioned up until now. So there are these undercurrents of revolution happening um, in Russia, and the Soviet is basically like the workers' party of these revolutionary idealists that 
join up with the Duma to form a provisional government. Um, So ironically, when this revolution breaks out um, in St. Petersburg, there were no serious revolutionary plans among the workers or revolutionaries. Um, You know, this sentiment has been percolating like everywhere else as Marxist theories spread across Europe. Um, But Lenin at the time is living in Zurich and had all but given up on revolution. Um, but now it's happened. So he, along, along with Trotsky, returned to St. Petersburg to join the Soviet and the struggle to contain the revolution begins. Because who's in charge? And what are you supposed to do with all these nobles that you've suddenly ousted? Many were arrested, mostly for their own safety, um, because the mob is like basically out for blood and is going to go kill them. Um, basically, they're looking to reenact the French Revolution. Um, and the Tsar and his family are kept under house arrest at their palace of Sarskoe-Selo outside of the city, um, ostensibly for their own safety while a plan is put in place to try to get them to a port in Finland and then by sea to Britain. Um, but as we talked about in Rise of the House of Windsor, they don't have a safe haven in Britain, um. King George is unable to offer them asylum due to his own political struggles at home. So while all of that's going on, power struggles are arising in the provisional government between the former members of the Duma and the Soviet. And they're struggling for control and to ultimately decide the fate of the nobles and the Tsar and his family. Um, So... Once Lenin returns to Russia, eventually the Soviets gain control and the upper hand, and those in power who cared to have a bloodless revolution are dwindling. And the Soviets actually feel there needs to be a clean break with no possibility for anyone to come back and try to claim the throne in like 10 years. So they've got to just get rid of the Imperials. There is a failed July uprising in 1917 by the Bolsheviks, which actually convinces those who still care about the welfare of the imperial family to move them. Um, They think they're probably in danger if they stay near St. Petersburg. And so the family is first moved to a town in Siberia um, called Tobolsk. And in November, the Bolsheviks succeed finally in gaining power. Um, And part of this outcome is that to consolidate their power, um, they do what the Russian people want, which is end the war. And so they accept peace terms with Germany on March 3rd, 1918. Um, But the terms are so bad, actually, that it led many to wonder if Lenin and company were actually German agents sent in to end the war. Um, I think one Russian general, like after he heard the terms, like went out and shot himself. Um, because what they lose is a lot of territory. Basically, Russia is no longer the Russian empire. It's just Russia. Um, And that's what they give up for a quick peace with Germany. Quick might not be the right word, but... And and at this point, Russia is um, the only ally to declare peace with Germany. So France and England are still at war with Germany. And so at this point, with the Bolsheviks in power, the family have no more saviors. Like I said, the Bolsheviks are not in favor of um, helping this family escape. So Nicholas, Alexandra, and their daughter Marie are set 
to travel to Moscow where Nicholas thinks he's going to be forced to sign this treaty. Um, he doesn't want to sign this. He's horrified that the Kaiser has dealt with the Bolsheviks at all. Um, and he's horrified at this, at the terms that they agree to, like it's unpatriotic and anti-Russian. So I don't think he's planning to sign it, but he's like, they're going to force me to sign this. Um, but instead of going to Moscow, their train is detained in another Siberian town, Ekaterinburg. Um, and the basically they get messages from the Soviet in Moscow to the Soviet in this town, don't let them leave. And they have a house set aside there um, that's ominously called like the house for special purposes or something. And... Um, Nicholas Alexandra and Marie are put up in that house. And then eventually um, the rest of the family is sent to join them. Alexis had been unwell, but as soon as he's able to travel, they go meet up with them. And there they're held um, for a few more months until July 16th, 1918, when they're all led into a sub-basement of the house along with Alexis's doctor and three of their servants, and they're shot and or bayoneted to death. And then their remains are taken to the woods where they're burned, dissolved in acid, and tossed down a mine shaft. And the disposal site was later found and identified with the help of Alexis's tutor from some broken pieces of jewelry and the still intact body of the family dog. The dog? Yeah, it's gruesome. Yeah. It's horrible. That's some Rasputin level stuff right there. Yeah. And so, um, they woke them up in the middle of the night and they were like, we have to move you. And then they took them down to the basement and they were like, actually, you've been ordered, so we've been ordered to kill you. Did they trust these people? I mean, were they betrayed or? No, they, so they, the, so throughout their confinement, so from the moment he abdicates to the moment that they're death, they're all held under some sort of imprisonment. So first it's at home, house arrest at their palace outside of St. Petersburg, and then they're moved to Siberia and then moved to the second town. And at every step along the way, they've got guards that are watching them. And it's funny because at every step along the way, they befriend the guards and the guards learn. They're like, hey, actually, these guys aren't really bad people. Like, you know, and so... Um, the and they're used that, to this like simple life of sleeping on hard cots and gruel yeah, they're and just all a, of that. They're just a family who like, yeah. you know you know, it's a mother and father and their five kids. And, um, you know, they would talk to the empress and be like, why didn't you come see the people? And she's like, well, you know, I had five kids. So, you know, and I nursed them myself. So I was kind of busy. And then after and that, my health got really bad dying. and I couldn't yeah. go out there. Um, but so this final house, they brought in um, a group of men that were basically assigned for this specific purpose. They knew they were being sent there as executioners and um, not to befriend the family. So, no, they didn't trust these soldiers. And, and actually, by the time this happened, they had started to suspect that no one was going to come and save them and that this was probably coming. They didn't know that it was happening. So when he abdicated, did. though, there wasn't, like, an option to just leave no, because when he abdicated, he was, um, sorry, I didn't really go into this. So he was not with his family. He was like away with the army. And so he had to travel by train back to the palace and they like waylaid his train. And while he had done this, his family had also been taken under guard. 
Um, because remember, the Imperial Guard has defected. Their, like, Imperial household guard defects. So they're left under the guard of the provisional government. So his family is basically being held captive. So there isn't anywhere to go. Mm. And they didn't really intend to kill him at first. I mean, they were still talking for a while about a trial and probably would have ended in execution, but might not have ended in the murder of everyone. Isn't Um, that funny, though? Like, they put them on trial, but it's like, for what? Well, he didn't even get a trial. Um, But if they were to put him on trial, it would be a lot like Charles, right? Where it's like, you're, you're... being oh, right. tried for no, treason no, 100% against yourself. No, 100% be for treason, and it would be like treason against who? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the question is why did they do this, and why now? So in short, the answer is, yet again, circumstances outside of the family's control. Basically, the Bolsheviks were running out of time because the Russian Revolution does not end with the Bolsheviks taking over, Um it ends in civil war. And so um, at this point, civil war is coming and foreign intervention are looming. So the Americans and the British are really angry that Russia signed a treaty because they um, both governments actually immediately recognized the provisional government after the czar abdicated. America gave a huge loan to Russia and the terms basically were... um, no war, no money. So basically it was, you stay in the war, we give you this money. Um, But Russia signed peace terms with Germany. And so American Marines and British soldiers are landing in like ports of Finland, ready to march in. A volunteer army has been organized in the Ukraine. And there's an army in Siberia made up of a Czech legion that's marching west towards this town where the czar and his family are being Kept And it's actually this um, approaching army that speeds up their execution. And they arrived eight days after the murder. So um, basically the Bolsheviks decided that if they wanted to control what happened to the family, they had to act now. Mm. And I'm not getting too much more beyond that into the Menshevik versus Bolshevik civil war and all that. That's a whole entirely different story that has nothing to do with the imperial family um except it did indirectly lead to their murder so now that we've gone through this very long discussion of the various reasons why the romanovs were killed i'm not sure what could have saved them you know was it just too little too late or is was it really like i said at the beginning like this perfect storm of revolutionary forces World War One, and then personal weaknesses. Well, it almost sounds like the circumstances were there when they take the throne. And, like, I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned the fact that, like, the public face they're presenting to the world isn't necessarily how they're living their lives. Right. Which reminded me, I, and I'm going to keep beating this drum, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Marie Antoinette. <laughs> yeah, but that, that like, public-facing life at Versailles, where it was like, we present this life of opulence, but behind the mask, it's not that great. And it's also not for you. Like, much like the French court, all the ritual and ceremony and opulence and extravagance was for the other nobles. And, in fact, any effort that Nicholas did try to make towards the people, you know, towards some concessions for what they wanted, it would lose him the support of the nobles because they weren't willing to give up, you know, anything 
for this. Which was and so like the same it's exactly as, the same as the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was like the nobles didn't want to they didn't want to, you know, carry their own weight. And it's almost like you almost like see the same pattern of like the people at the top. It's yeah. like if you look at it like a pyramid, you have the people at the top and the people in that like upper section that are sort of holding up the top but sitting on top of the bottom section are the ones that cause the whole thing to crumble. It's, it's true. like they're not willing to give up their position to the detriment of the people at the top because maybe the they feel the... less secure. Yeah. 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 It's it, it's really interesting. I think the parallels to me and I keep saying it, but I mean the parallels are fascinating because it's 100 years apart, continents apart. But the circumstances are eerily similar. I mean, there's no, like, Rasputin figure, which I think I cannot get over. I'm so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but I cannot get over that. But, but like, what you see is the same thing where it's, like, you have a foreign bride coming in. and But, like, honestly, it's, like, not up to them. It's, like, they're just, like, trying to raise their children and do the best by their children and that that like love of their children is almost being exploited you have a husband who can't really he's not powerful and charismatic enough to overcome the obstacles in his way which I think that's the thing is like when you have a monarchy on its way out it's like it requires 100% the charisma to overcome those obstacles and then you just have a nobility class that arguably calls the shots that isn't willing to give up their, like you say, their comfort, their position at the top. And then you have the people at the bottom who are starving and in the Russians' case is freezing in 35 below weather, not willing to put up with that anymore. Right. And I think you'll appreciate this. There's also a misattributed quote. <laughs> so Nicholas wrote a letter I think to Alexandra where he was after he'd abdicated and he said something like, Oh, I'll be happy to play dominoes again or something like that. And people took it as like, Oh, he doesn't care. He just is happy to like go play games now. But really what he was saying was like, you know, I'm, I'll be happy to be with the family again and like see you guys and like play dominoes with you. Not like instead of all of this. Right. Right. And so it was kind of his, I'll let them eat. I'll let them eat cake comment. Mm. But yeah. No, it's all really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's really like a, sad. I mean, I uh, let's not forget, I mean, he was an autocrat who really didn't believe in a lot of basic rights for his people, but despite all of that, I don't believe he nor his family deserved to be killed in that way. Um their and bodies then, were then, eventually exhumed and buried and they've been named um I don't know if saints, maybe they're saints in the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, but then also it's like what you know of like what happened later with like the rise of Lenin and Stalin and communism well, you know, and the people like, weren't that much better off. You know, it's funny because there was an epilogue to this book and um, Lenin caused all of this and he only ruled for like 10 more years. Um and Trotsky had to like flee for his life and all of this. So the the Russian Civil War definitely has some some impact after this as well. But yeah, I mean, knowing what this led to is really interesting. Um, and there's also some paths not taken. So um, at one point, the Prince of Wales had kind of approached for Alex's hand. So she might have married him. 
and who knows what would have happened. Um, when we then, say Prince of Wales, we're talking... Um, the one that died. Oh, so Mary of Tech's fiancé. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah, and then, um, you know, I didn't really get to it, but they weren't the only Romanovs that were killed, so... Um, there was also a roundup and murder of a lot of relatives, including um, Alex's sister, um, who was living in a convent, I believe. Um, and she she ignored many repeated calls to escape. In fact, the Kaiser even tried to help her escape because he had once wanted to marry her. Um, and it was all this, all this drama. Um, she was eventually murdered as well as... Um, Nicholas's brother and several uncles and cousins. Um, his oh, mother did escape. I'd have to refresh my memory, but is this is this the time period when that tiara was smuggled out of Russia? I think so, because I think I was reading in this in this book actually. So this book was written in the '60s, so some of it's not quite. Um, doesn't go beyond that, but there was reference where it's like, oh yeah, Queen Elizabeth often wears this. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's the tiara. Okay. Yeah. And I think a diamond necklace as well. No, there were like a lot of jewels. I think it was like they yeah. had like a British well, like so agent went in. Well, um, the daughters were really hard to kill because their clothes were concealing a lot of jewels. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's yeah. awful. I know. It's almost like note, armor, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No. Um, on that note. Um, all right. That's, that's like terribly sad. I it mean, is terribly you know, sad. I think we like, obviously you, do you know what, have, like, do you know what's more sad? So speaking of what came after, so the beginning of this book starts with a preface where the author is, I believe in Russia at a museum and there's a Fabergé egg that are, I think it's an egg. It's a Fabergé something. And it has portraits of the, um, of the imperial children on it and he's talking to like russians and they're like oh who is that and they've never heard of the romanovs oh really because obviously after this happened the soviets tried to suppress knowledge of it and so it wasn't it's not like they were taught in school so they were not forgotten to history but it took a very long time before they got their due um i've actually um, as you mentioned, I've been to Russia and I've been to the church where they're um, memorialized. Um, it's very affecting, actually. It's just interesting to me because, like, you and I obviously take an interest in this. Like, my interest in the in the like royals is like, and I've said this before, I think, but like, you're born into circumstances that you cannot escape, and I am very fascinated as like how people live their lives inside those constraints. Like, to me, that's what's it like to be born into an identity and a profession and a life that's already been decided for you. That's, like, my interest in monarchy and the royals. But then you have a situation like this where it's like, did they ever think about an alternative? Did they ever think, like, hey, this is getting dangerous. Let's run away. No, because they also just didn't believe this would happen to them. I mean, there's yeah, an element of hubris here that you can't discount where, you know, these people were 
raised and lived their whole lives believing this was what they deserve. So, I mean, I'm not blaming the victims here, but they, no, they did not have an, a consideration of maybe we do something else. Ooh. You know, and well, that was the fear of the Bolsheviks too, which was if we let these people live, what's to stop them from coming back and trying to claim power? Right, because obviously in the people would... I mean, because, yes, there are a lot of people who, you know, well, especially out, them out, of, out of tiny out of towns of Siberia, you know, mother and father Russia, so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I feel like we could keep talking about this for another hour and a half. Um, I don't know if we should, <laughs> so I'm going to wrap us up, but... Um, we will be back again with a couple more stories of deposed monarchs. I think the next one is taking us back to England. And it's it's a bit of a twist on this tale, isn't it? Oh, which one is that one? Harold? Oh, yes. So, actually, I think we have two more left. Yes, two more. Yes. Uh, we're going to do Harold, who was, uh, if you don't know, deposed, although maybe... Conquered is the better term. Deposed in um, battle. <laughs> yes, as we're going to do William the Conqueror by way of Harold, which is something that we've been wanting to do. and We thought we'd just fit it into this series. And then we actually had a suggestion by a listener, which was a great suggestion and one that I think um, we had considered a while ago and just actually forgotten. So thank you for suggesting this. But we're going to do... Um, Edward the Second, who I I'm more excited to talk about because his father was Edward Longshanks and his wife was Isabella of France, also known as the She Wolf of France, and um, that'll be a really interesting one to cover. Absolutely. So, until then. <laughs> until then. All right. All right. Bye. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.